You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So a few weeks ago, uh, some of you asked me, who shall remain nameless, It's fine. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Some of you asked me to speak on Calvinism uh, here during Lent. Um, It became a hot topic downstairs in our recent book club. And I don't think I've ever actually taken an entire Sunday morning to talk about Calvinism before, because why why would I? (laughs) Um, You know, uh, but it's an interesting topic. And some of you expressed some real interest in it. And uh, frankly, this this Lenten series we're doing on the on the sufferings of God. Uh, kind of goes along with this theme today of looking at Calvinism. So this morning, I want to address the question, what is Calvinism and why does it suck? Um, <clears throat> or to put it another way, what is it and why is it so influential? Why is it so dominant, pervasive throughout Christendom, specifically throughout evangelicalism even today? Um, and let's begin, um, and well, let me just say that Calvinism is basically based, basically based on a very bad interpretation and understanding of the cross, of the sufferings of God in Christ. Again, that's pertinent to our series here, so I'm trying to tie it in. <laughs> um, but let's begin by understanding that the name Calvinism comes, of course, from its creator, uh, John Calvin, who was a 16th century, going back a few hundred years here, a 16th century French. Frenchman. He was a French theologian, pastor, uh, and instigator of uh, the Protestant Reformation, one of a few, like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and uh, John Calvin. They were um, responsible for that great break with the Catholic Church in the 16th century that became the Protestant Reformation that gave birth to churches like this one and countless others. Um, Calvinism is also known as Reformed theology. Maybe you've heard that term before, Reformed theology. If you see a church with Reformed in its name, you can bet that that is a Calvinist church that some way is informed by Calvinism. Um, there is an actual, there's an actual congregation or denomination called the Reformed Churches of America, RCA. Maybe you've heard of them before. They're very po- they're basically Dutch Reformed, um, popular in Dutch enclaves like West Michigan and elsewhere. The Presbyterian Church, both PCUSA and PCA, Presbyterian Churches of Presbyterian Church of America, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, those tend to be Reformed traditions, so influenced by Calvinism. However, there's great disparity here. It's complicated. A lot of PCUSA churches tend to be very liberal and not very Calvinist at all. So it's complicated. I don't want to say that Presbyterian churches are all like deeply Calvinist because depending on the congregation, they're not. Um, it's complicated. But Calvinism's having a moment today in evangelicalism. It's having a moment. It's re- it's experienced kind of a resurgence because it's found a home in a lot of non-denominational evangelical churches like the now defunct Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Anybody familiar with Mars Hill? Let me see some hands, a few of you. You listen to that podcast on Christianity Today. Mark Driscoll, right? Very prominent pastor. We won't get into all the history of that, uh, but 
you know, that church is part of a greater church planting movement, church planting organization called Acts 29, which has churches all over the United States, which tend to be very similar, meaning very kind of young and hip, but also deeply informed by Calvinism, deeply reformed theology. Um, and so there's a lot of hipster, mostly millennial mega churches across the country that embody Calvinism and a kind of neo-fundamentalism. And we'll get more into that in a few minutes. But suffice to say, that's why this is such an important topic, because Calvinism has had a moment lately in the last 10 or 20 years in the United States. Um, but let's let's begin just with some history about John Calvin himself. Again, he was a 16th century Frenchman, French theologian, French pastor, who was a big part of the Protestant Reformation. And he was particularly preoccupied, obsessed, some may say, with four main things. Biblical authority, the sovereignty of God, predestination, and eternal damnation, which means he wasn't much fun at parties. <laughs> I work jokes throughout my talks. Sometimes I even have in parentheses, laugh. Um, so in the cities and towns where he where he was, uh, where he and his followers had control because uh, the Protestant Reformation was very schismatic and the cities and towns of medieval Europe in that time were often controlled by a particular church, particular cathedral denomination. Uh, in the cities and towns where Calvin and his followers had control, church attendance was mandatory. And if you didn't show up on Sundays, you were thrown in jail, which is fascinating. Great way to grow a church, right? Um, he also condoned uh, the burning of heretics at the stake. This tells you something about Calvin. He condoned also the torture of heretics and apostates in order to force their repentance. Um, let's just say that his understanding of Christianity was a bit at odds with the teachings of Christ and the virtues and the character of the Jesus we find revealed in the four Gospels. It's hard to believe that even he even read the Gospels, but he did, and somehow he got this from them. Um, but to be clear, Calvin's theology and methods were not that extreme for the 16th century. This was uh, the Middle Ages. Luther, Zwingli, and other reformers, and even the Catholic Church itself at this time, shared some of his views and some of his methods. I mean, it was a violent time. But Calvin was perhaps more extreme than most, and his ideas have stayed kind of extreme in the church. Um, and his ideas are basically summed up in an acronym called TULIP, and this will be up on the screen. This is an acronym. I didn't come up with this, and Calvin didn't even come up with this, to be clear. This acronym, TULIP, like the flower, T-U-L-I-P, um, I think it was developed in the 20th century by... Calvinist theologians, but nevertheless, it's a helpful shorthand for understanding Calvin's core ideas and how Calvinist Christians and Calvinist communities embody them today. All right, so I'll just walk through these briefly. We can expand on them more if you have questions uh, later in the discussion portion. First up, total depravity. This is the idea that every human being is born totally depraved, totally fallen, totally, <laughs> not totally wicked, there's good in us, they would say. But the idea is that you are born with original sin. You are born with a sin nature. You are born unholy and worthy, therefore, of eternal damnation. By no fault of your own, this is just 
We'll get into what original sin's about in a moment. But suffice to say, everybody is born totally depraved and worthy of eternal damnation. That's the first wonderful idea. Uh, next up, unconditional election. That means for those who are predestined and chosen by God to be saved, you cannot reject it. You cannot fight it. You are predestined. You are pre-elect. Your election is unconditional. Okay. Next up, limited atonement. This means that Christ died on the cross for only the elect. He didn't really die for everybody. He died only for those who are predestined to be saved, those who are pre-chosen before time by the Father to be elect, to be saved, to be granted eternal life. Christ only died for them, and his blood that was shed on the cross is only for the those who are predestined elect. Okay. Number four, irresistible grace. It's kind of the same idea of unconditional election. For those who have been granted the, the saving grace of God, it's irresistible. You cannot resist it. You know what irresistible means. I don't need to explain that. Um, again, kind of like unconditional election. And then finally, the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Those who are predestined, those who are elect, uh, shall persevere to the end. In other words, their salvation is sure. They cannot uh, do anything. They can sin, but ultimately they can never not be saved. All right. Again, um, that's, that's Tulip. Obviously, there's some pretty terrible things going on in these ideas, namely this idea that some are predestined for heaven and some are not. What that means, this is called double predestination. Not all Calvinists believe in double predestination, but it's a little hard to understand how they don't. If they believe that some are elect, <laughs> that means they must by default believe that some are predestined or chosen for hell. Double predestination is this idea that some are predestined for hell. Some were born to be merely objects of wrath. Most human beings, in other words, across time, were born to be objects of wrath, kindling if you will, for the fires of hell. Objects of wrath, meaning they are chosen by God to be objects of punishment so that God might be able to demonstrate his sovereignty, his holiness, and his justice, and his wrath in order to demonstrate to everybody how terrible sin is and how just God is. God pre-chose that some shall go to hell. Wonderful idea. Again, not all Calvinists hold to this view. This stuff's complicated. Not all Calvinists hold to this view of predestination. Some would still emphasize free will, but all Calvinists hold to this idea of total depravity, that all human beings everywhere are born wicked and worthy of eternal damnation which is a pretty terrible and low view of humanity and God for that matter. Uh, and we're born this way, we're told, by no fault of our own, but because our ancestors, meaning Adam and Eve, or whoever they represent, some Calvinists would even read the Genesis creation account figuratively, but nevertheless as depicting a literal spiritual event. Our ancestors sinned, we're told. The original, the first human being, sinned, somehow disobeying God, thus corrupting themselves spiritually at least, if not physically, and we'll get to that. But the idea of, of, the, of original sin is rooted in this idea that the first human, the original human beings, 
sinned, disobeyed God with the supernatural effect that they corrupted themselves morally and spiritually so that all of their descendants, all of their offspring, including us, are born with this thing called a sin nature, which means we sin and we can't help it. We can't avoid it. We're, we're corrupt. So we sin because we're simply human. But we're born this way. And original sin isn't just doesn't just mean that we're born with this sin nature, this propensity to sin, this irresistible propensity to sin and to disobey God, but it also means that we inherited Adam and Eve's or the first human beings sin guilt. We are guilty in this line of thinking of their sin and therefore worthy by no fault of our own, worthy of death because of it. Calvin did not come up with this idea of original sin. He merely pretty much enhanced it. It was really Augustine more than a thousand years prior, Augustine, some of the early church fathers in the fourth century, maybe you, you could say that Paul, you know, kind of laid the foundation for this idea of original sin, even though he didn't come up with that term, you will not find the term original sin in the Bible. All right. But you could, you could argue that some of Paul's writings are talking about it. Augustine really came up with the idea Calvin picked it up and ran with it. You could, you could look at it like that. Original sin, again, is this idea that in the Garden of Eden or in some primordial world or early state of existence that the Garden of Eden myth represents, the first human beings disobeyed God in a way that corrupted not just themselves, but the entire human race for the rest of time. This is called also the fall of man. Have you heard that term before or just the fall? By the way, a, another term like original sin you will not find in the Bible. You do not find the term the fall in the Bible. This is an idea that came along uh, probably sometime in the Middle Ages, um, or perhaps, perhaps even in the last 300 years. I'm not entirely sure. be a good research topic for somebody. <laughs> um, but the doctrine of the fall says that the entire human race became morally defective in the first human, human sin, but it also says that the effects of original sin were not just spiritual, but also physical and perhaps even cosmological. Meaning the reason why there's suffering and death in the world, the reason why there's cancer, the reason why there's tornadoes and hurricanes, the reason why there's predation, tigers killing gazelles on the African savanna, the, re the reason why there's hospitals, etc., is because human beings sinned and disobeyed God at the beginning of time. And we corrupted not just ourselves spiritually, but the entire cosmos with evil and death. All right. That's, that's, that's a deeply Calvinist understanding of natural history and cosmology. And you can maybe see some of the problems here. Jesus's death on the cross, therefore, is only understood as a response to the fall and original sin. And from a Calvinist perspective, Jesus came to die on the cross to reverse the curse, as it were to undo the fall, to fix what we broke. The thinking is Jesus' death had supernatural power to liberate us from the effects of the fall, meaning original sin and death, but only for those who believe, only for those who believe in Jesus, i.e. Christians, does Jesus' death work, work its magic, so to speak. 
And it doesn't take away our sin nature, at least not in this life, in this world, because Christians are still imperfect, right? <laughs> but Jesus' death makes us right with God so that God can give us eternal life in heaven and life in the world to come when the earth and the cosmos are made new and perfect again. So the arc of history from a Calvinist or even traditional conservative Christian perspective, because these ideas are not just Calvinist, they're pretty much just traditional Orthodox Christian, conservative Christianity. But the arc of history from a Calvinist perspective basically goes like this. This is the story. God made us in creation perfect. Human sin ruined it. So God had to send Jesus to fix it. And Jesus will complete his work of resetting everything back to an Eden-like state at the second coming, when all things will be made new, including us, or at least the elect. Does that make sense? I mean, no, it doesn't make sense. But, <laughs> but does that explanation make sense? Again, this theology is pretty ubiquitous in the church, not just in Calvinist churches. This is, this is considered just Orthodox Christianity. Conservative as it is, that's considered Orthodox Christianity. But Calvinists really emphasize it because Calvinism is really about our sin and our depravity and God's holiness and God's wrath for sin. It's really about how we are all worthy of hellfire, but God in his grace and love spares the elect few. To look at it in, at in another way, the cross for Calvin, the death of Jesus for Calvin, was about a God who demanded the brutal death of his son to be appeased, to be satisfied. God needed to take out his wrath and anger on someone for our sin, our shortcomings. God needed to do this, we're told, in order to have his wrath satisfied so that he could love and accept us, because otherwise he couldn't. We're told. God needed to do this not just to appease his wrath and anger, but to prove how terrible our sin really was. The only way for God to really prove it, to get it, you know, get his message through to us was by brutally slaughtering a perfect man, his own son, no less, we're told. Right? The only way God could communicate to us just how terrible sin really was by brutally slaughtering Jesus of Nazareth and appeasing his wrath, appeasing his sense of justice, showing just how holy and mighty he was so that we might fear him and honor him as such and worship him and adore him for this. Lovely, right? This is not the picture of a loving father, is it? What kind of a father needs to scapegoat and slaughter one of his children to love and accept the others. This is a, what would we say about a human father who behaved this way? What would we say about a father who says, I had to kill one of my kids to teach the other ones a lesson? And, or, and in order to appease my wrath and to love and accept them, the other ones, the ones I let live, I needed to slaughter one of my children and terrorize the others into submission, you know, whatever. What would we say about such a father? We'd lock him up and throw away the key. We certainly wouldn't give him a pass. We certainly wouldn't sing songs to him and worship him on Sunday mornings. Wouldn't adore him. 
well, why does God get a pass for behaving this way? And this gets into how Calvinism affects people psychologically. This is where I want to take things here this morning. The, the theology of it all is interesting. It kind of lives up here in the abstract. Let's talk about the material. How does this really affect people psychologically? How does this get lived out in the world, Calvinism? In order to believe in the God of Calvinism, one must sacrifice their moral compass, I think. One must sacrifice their judgment and their intuition. One must sacrifice their sense of decency and their, their empathy for others, which is to say, ironically, tragically, in order to believe in such a God, one must sacrifice their very soul, their very humanity, to some degree. How ironic is that? How tragic is that? The God who supposedly saves our soul is the very God we must be saved from in order to preserve our soul, in order to preserve our humanity. Another way of saying this is to say that Calvinism and, and related theologies is really a form of gaslighting. What is, what is gaslighting? Well, for those of you who don't know, Gaslighting is a form of emotional and psychological abuse, whereby somebody tries to convince you that you're crazy or that you can't trust your own judgment. I think what ultimately happens in churches that really lean into Calvinism or related forms of fundamentalism is a kind of gaslighting takes place that undermines the rest of a person's life and their ability to, to think clearly and to trust themselves. And I should know because I grew up this way. The scars remain. People that are gaslit are often prone to conspiracy theories, fake news, misinformation, superstition, and pseudoscience because they don't know what's real. They've been told their whole life, just trust this religious authority over here. Just listen to them. They've basically lost the ability to engage in critical thinking to a great degree. This is deeply problematic, and we see the effects of it today throughout evangelicalism. I don't know if you've noticed, but more than gaslighting, there's a psychotic relationship to language itself going on in Calvinism. What do I mean by that? In other words, love doesn't really mean love. Love, that word gets twisted in these fundamentalist circles, these Calvinist circles. Love is twisted into actually hate and violence. We're told God loves us so much that he burns us, right? We're told God loves us so much that he demanded Jesus's agonizing death. Do you hear how love gets twisted into violence and hate in such theology? It's, it's a psychotic relationship to language because it takes words like love and disconnects them from reality, disconnects them from their actual meaning. Psychosis basically means being disconnected from reality, right? Somebody who suffers from psychosis is somebody who has experienced a disconnect from the world, from reality. In reality, love is never abusive. Love never says, I love you so much that I have to threaten you with violence in order to get you to love me. Love never says, I love you so much 
that I have to threaten you with eternal torment in hell in order to get you to love me back or to get you to believe in me. This God who says, love me or else, this God who says, believe in me or I'm going to incinerate you, that is not love. Any God that needs to use the threat of violence to gain followers or believers is morally bankrupt. Any religion that needs to use the threat of violence, whether in this life or the next, to gain believers, adherence, is morally bankrupt. We shouldn't even have to make these arguments, should we? This should be patently obvious. Somebody who says, love me or else, we shouldn't have to make these arguments. That's not love. It, what does it say? that I have to make these arguments on Sunday mornings. I mean, not to you, you all get this. <laughs> but I mean, this is how we grew up, so many of us. The fact that we have to make these arguments shows just how diabolical and damaging this theology is and how it corrupts people's minds. It's gaslighting, it's like psychosis. So this is how Calvinism functions as a kind of gaslighting and emotional and psychological abuse. And it has the power to feed into the rest of people's lives. It affects our relationships with others. It's why many Christians get stuck in abusive relationships, I think. Not just abusive marriages, but it's why so many people get stuck in abusive churches. Where the pastor embodies this, this narcissistic, abusive, and sociopathic God that uses violence or the threat of violence to control others, i.e. Mark Driscoll, many others. He, he's, he's not unique. I've been in churches where the pastor embodies this narcissistic abuse of God. This God is a projection. He's a, the God of Calvinism is a projection of these, frankly, abusive, narcissistic, kind of sociopathic men like Calvin who dreamt him up and who keep him alive because he serves their needs for control and manipulation. Such a God exists to serve the needs of abusive leaders and abusive communities who need to use fear and shame to control and manipulate others. And again, this isn't just a problem with Calvinism. We're picking on Calvinism this morning, and rightfully so. But this is a problem throughout evangelical. This is a problem throughout conservative Christianity, whether it's Reformed, we're talking about a Reformed church or not. This is a problem with Orthodox Christianity. But Calvinism continues to play a big role today and has experienced a resurgence over the last 20 years or so, in large part because I think it's, it's part of a larger right-wing reactionary movement. There's a growing sense among many conservatives today, not just political conservatives, but theological conservatives as well. There's a growing sense that they're losing the culture war to the secular left, and they are. And therefore, they need to double down on their conservative and so-called traditional values. This explains you know, the rise of a particular candidate a few years ago, I'm not going to mention, um, maintain our tax-exempt status. Uh, but this reactionary movement from the right 
not just politically, but, but theologically has, has led to Calvinism having a moment because Calvinism being what it is, is an effective tool to maintain so-called traditional values in the culture and the church. Um, this is why Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and the Acts 29 Network, John Piper, the Gospel Coalition, and countless other churches and parachurch organizations, this is why all of them are proud Calvinists and why so many evangelicals dig what they're doing and saying. It's part of a larger right-wing reactionary movement against the perceived threat of the secular left. This is why Calvinism's having a moment. You remember that book we read in book club last year, Jesus and John Wayne. How many of you read that, that book? Good. I know a bunch of you did. That book is basically about how evangelicalism has always, it's always had a predilection for authoritarianism and traditional social hierarchies, meaning social hierarchies that put, generally speaking, white, straight, Christian men at the top and everybody else in stratifications below. That, that book is basically about how evangelicalism has, has always had a predilection for authoritarianism and traditional social hierarchies, but over the last 10 years or so, that predilection, that fondness and desire for authoritarianism and traditional social hierarchies has surged and Calvinism has surged with it because it meets those desires. All right. That was fun. <laughs> There's my talk for this morning, and uh, we're ready for conversation. If anybody wants to have some, we've got 15 minutes left. Um, we want to, for those of you who are new here, we always have a discussion following my talks where you get to agree, disagree, comment. Um, and if you're joining us via Zoom, you can unmute, raise your voice that way. But um, I would ask that if you do comment, please keep your comments to a minute at the most, maybe. Um, but yeah, anybody this morning have any questions or comments about, about any of this? Calvinism. Oh, good. Hands. Um, all right. So, uh, Brian, I'm going to just, can I bring you the mic? And then Jason. And this way, you not only get recorded on the podcast, but you're also hearable for the folks on Zoom. Not that <laughs> I just had a quick question, which is, why did anybody follow him? Like, what did they see? in it for them why you know what uh, motivated them to do it was there some you know higher calling they saw or what it, it doesn't sound like you know a good sell overall <laughs> why would anybody follow john calvin is that's a great question why didn't anybody buy into this stuff um why does anybody buy into it today you know why why does anybody follow any cult leader today you know, it's always easy to ask those questions when you're on the outside looking in, right? And you're looking at, you know, pick your cult. Why did anybody follow David Koresh? Remember the Branch Davidians? Maybe I'm dating myself here. Yeah, from the 90s. Um, you know, the, the quick answer to that question is that because Calvin, like so many others, were selling certainty. They're selling answers. Here's the answer. I know what God's will is, and if you follow me, you're going to be okay right? You believe the right things. You believe all these things that I tell you to believe. Everything's going to be okay. You'll have eternal life in heaven beyond. You'll be right and everybody else will be wrong. You know, you'll be, you're on the in crowd if you follow me. Everyone else, 
they're kind of dumb. They're kind of naive, <laughs> right? It's kind of, it, it's tribalistic, but it also feeds this innate human need for answers, for certainty, for comfort. Um, isn't it amazing that an abusive man and an abusive community like Calvin's could provide comfort, but there's great comfort in, in knowing and in seeing other people get brutalized and knowing that you're safe from that. There's comfort in that. I know it's fucked up, but that's the way we are, you know, to use some strong language. But I, I guess that's the best answer I can come up with, you know? We, we, people crave this stuff. It's sad about it. It says something about our humanity that we, you know, even, even today, you know, so many Christians believe that so many people are going to hell and that God is returning to destroy the earth, to judge the earth. Why do people take comfort in the eternal burning of others? Why do people even today take comfort in that theology that some are going to burn forever while I'm dancing on streets of gold? How is that possible? And that's not even Calvinist. That's just conservative Christianity. Why do people take comfort in believing in the eternal burning of others? It says something about our human nature. We want to feel safe. We want to feel powerful. I think that's why people follow Calvin, psychologically speaking, but it's, it's complicated. Um, good question. Uh, John, uh, Jason, you were next. My comment's similar, just like a cursory look at the life and actions of John Calvin is a really good argument for atheism. Because the guy was a train wreck, like a really horrible murderer. Um, and from the outside, I mean, it's yeah, like there's no justification. He's the only guy who decides what's right and wrong. And whether you're in or you're out, there's no like metric. <laughs> that says, you know, you're saved because of uh, anything but John Calvin says you are, uh, or you do what John Calvin wants you to do. And that's horrible. Um, and from the inside, because, you know, I was definitely on the inside of that um, worldview for a long time. Um, it's, I think there's a deep fear that you're not one of the elect. And at the same time, there's a, uh, you're, you're constantly working to make sure that you and everybody else sees you as one of the elect. So it's, I don't even think people really think about people outside of their sphere, close to your family or whatever, going to hell. I think they're not, they don't even come to mind. For the most part, I think it's mostly just making sure that you're not going to hell and your your kids and your families aren't going to hell by doing what you're told. But yeah, it's horrible and you shouldn't do that. Yeah, I like what you said. Um, it reminded me of um, a quote I heard. I forget who. Oh, it was John. It was not John Tillich. Paul Tillich once said, um, you know, in response to that particular conception of God, atheism is the correct theological response. We think about it. Atheism is the correct theological response, the correct moral response to certain conceptions of God. I love that. It's, it's true. In, in a sense, you could almost look at it like maybe God is testing us. <laughs> 
kind of a terrible view of God. So, but it, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Maybe the real test of your faith is whether or not you're going to listen to what some pastor or some book says, even if it tells you to stone gay people. Maybe the real test of your moral fabric and your spirituality is whether or not you're willing to follow some, some horrible sociopathic God. Atheism is the correct theological and moral response sometimes, often. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, good stuff. Somebody else. Yeah, uh, Leanne and then Emily. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, um, I was a videographer at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York uh, as a survival job, which is Tim Keller's church. Um, and it was just a really interesting experience to go on gigs and, um, you know, shoot a variety of events and sermons and all of that. Um, and just in the modern context of like, why would someone get involved with that? Um, it's all presented in a church like that. It's presented very beautifully. There are C.S. Lewis quotes. Um, they have piano players, like expert piano players with beautiful music and very, very intelligent, well-read PhD doctorate. Like Tim Keller has a massive brain. Like these guys can talk and they are eloquent. And if you're that left brain seeker, predominantly it 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 really is like you can be dazzled by their intellect and it was interesting as a videographer to then film the three-hour membership course which outlines exactly what Aaron just said without any irony um so I just think in terms of like this modern you know looking at something like a large church like Tim Keller's church um, there's definitely appeal in certain ways and feeling like you're a part of a rational, a logical construct, a framework, an ethical framework. That's what it's kind of presented as, is like an architecture for your life. I think that can be appealing. Um, just the underbelly of it is morally reprehensible. Um, also, there's an element of <clears throat> telling you you're terrible first, because it's almost like an emotionally abusive or physically abusive relationship. You're crap, but I can help you. And I'm the only one that can help you. Um, but Point number two, if God was all powerful, he could control his anger. He could control people into not doing the things that he would then have to wrath them for or kill them or hurt them. And if he does know this and does it anyway, is God love? Right. Um, third point. Um, you as a father, us as parents, whether you are or aren't, you love your parents, you love your whatever. If that person stopped loving you or was terrible to you or turned against you, would you ever stop loving them enough to hurt them or kill them? It's If humans cannot 
hate their own children or people that they're related to enough to kill them, why are we more powerful than God in that sense? Just a bunch of things that don't make sense. Yeah, and thank God it, they don't make sense. Thank God. Um, yeah, if, again, good enough. Yeah, um, Jen and then Emily. I think the biggest thing when we first talked about this in book club, I was like, oh, now I understand why. Like that, this theology was used to justify uh, enslaving people and clearing people off of land, you know, manifest destiny. It, it really clicked because I never really understood like how that could happen. Um, but it makes a lot of sense if this is what you believe, you know, you believe those people are not chosen. They are literally evil and going to hell. I may as well just subjugate them and kill them myself because that's how much God cares about them. So why should I treat them any differently? So. Um, I also grew kind of have been part of uh, communities that have were heavily Calvinistic. So I definitely have some inside experience with that. Um, I do think it's like, um, I think it's important to also uh, like recognize maybe that we're like we're really distilling it down and and describing like when you really look at these things and see what they mean um I think you, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that are fairly evident um, but I also think that the way maybe it's important to just like really internalize that the framework is that we are all like the, you know, the starting point is that we are all uh you know there's kind of a twisting of a truth which i find the difficult part is that like clearly we would probably all ascribe to the fact that no one is perfect um so there is this sort of fallenness that is or this humanness right that that we all experience and so it's like how do you um i think there's like a twisting of that becoming that there is nothing good and that we are all condemned like we all deserve death like a brutal death and so like i think it's easy to portray the kind of like oh this person like how could they believe that um everyone is, you know everyone who doesn't believe is damned to you know torture um but it's like the, the framework is that we all like there's this kind of twisted framework from the beginning that there is really it's a, i think a difficult relationship with like God's love, like how to even accept that love for themselves. Um, and so not that this like, um, that this absolves the, the, the whole kind of the, the flawed framework, but I think it's at least helpful to like have some, have a compassion for how one could end up in this framework is that there's so much self-condemnation and there's no place, um, for, god's love like they can't accept god's love themselves and i think i'm speaking personally like having i think the the part of this framework that i was once involved in did revolve around that and I, I i just think it's helpful to like um to resist the temptation to just say 
uh, you know, how could, how could this be possible? It's like, if you really cannot accept God's love and this is what you think you deserve, save for the miraculous, whatever, you know, like that you're the special chosen one that's spared this, like, of course, like that's, that's what the entire framework revolves around. So it's not just like, um, a special evil that's reserved for, um, for others. Yeah. Lakin, hey Lakin, go ahead. Hi everybody. Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm good. From uh, the uh, Pacific Northwest. Yes, um, I'll make it real quick. I just uh, I was thinking after that very first comment, you were responding about um, people believing in this kind of thing because of certainty, and that really struck a chord with me because I know the last church that I was a part of before I really started deconstructing. Um, you know, I just held a lot of cognitive dissonance. And now I've learned to operate in the gray. And I literally just wrote just this very short thing a couple of days ago. And I just wanted to share it because I think it really Me speaks too. to this point. Um, so I called it uh, a dog finding a rainbow. <laughs> Believing is a spectrum, not a dichotomy. Sometimes deconstructing can look like going from one end of the spectrum to the other, believing to unbelieving. But I have found myself traveling back and forth from one end to the other, stopping, thinking, feeling, moving again. Ultimately, I think I mostly occupy the middle, believing a truth to not believing if I, to, to not, sorry, believing a truth to not knowing if I believe a truth is much more gray. It seems I no longer live in a world of black and white, and most people don't like that. This lyric used to make me very uncomfortable, but in it, I now find great solidarity. Now, I don't believe in Jesus as anything but a man. I worry that religion is doing less good than bad. And I know that that makes a lot of good people mad. Gray, very gray. Or is it actually like a dog finding a rainbow? <laughs> maybe, just maybe. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, wow, yeah. and. Uh, Maybe we should just end there. <laughs> it's it's eleven thirty three. Um, that's that's a great. Yeah, are story. you available to come preach? What's that? <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> what did, wait, I'm sorry. What did? Oh, oh, did you? What, Bob, was that you asking her to come preach? Oh, yes, absolutely, Lakin. We love you. Absolutely. Anytime you want to come here and and uh, do music and speak, you are welcome to do that. Lakin, for those of you who don't know, was. Uh, big part of central before she and her wife moved up to uh you're in the seattle area or i forget i and, am just uh, outside of seattle yeah 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 anyway that's who lake it is all right good enough um thanks for joining us everybody um thanks for discussing these difficult messy things there's more we could say um but uh we can always say them next week i guess um but we'll be focusing over the next few weeks for the rest of lent on this question uh, or this topic of, of the suffering God. What does it mean um, that God suffers in the world? Well, how can we understand the crucifixion and the sufferings of God in Christ? But thanks for being here. Going, oh, we have our benediction. I almost forgot. I love to end this way because it brings us all together and ends on such a positive note. Let's say this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility we dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, 
and each other. Thanks for being here. Go in peace. Thank you.